0: You're listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Tom Plant. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. And this week, we're going to be talking about, continuing our conversation about energy productivity and um, talking this week, really focusing in on policies, state policies to advance energy productivity. In, in all, all the areas that, you, Jeff, you really talked about in our first podcast when we were doing our introduction... Yeah, we
1: talked about uh, demand response, Tom. Uh, We talked about uh, the various technologies that are uh, enabled through demand response and sort of flattening out the utility curve. Um, We've talked about uh, consumer programs, behavioral programs. Right. We did a previous podcast on that, and we'll link to that. And so we we sort of now we're going to take I think a step back from uh, what is energy productivity and the, uh, the individual technologies and look at what are the enabling policies that drive uh, the deployment of efficiency.
0: Yeah, and you know, clearly the, the most popular policy around the country, 25 different states have adopted some form of, of energy efficiency resource standard. And what an EERS, as they're referred to, What the, what they do is basically say that over a certain period of time, a utility or a state uh, will achieve uh, an annual reduction or an overall cumulative reduction in uh, what they would have otherwise uh, generated. It could be actually structured a couple different ways. What they would have otherwise needed in terms of energy or uh, you know, take a base year and uh, set a percentage reduction from that, from that base year on an annual basis. So this is sort of
1: the the brother or sister policy to the renewable energy standard, Tom, which is structured in a similar way, a percentage of, in this case, reduction by X year, whereas a renewable energy standard would be a percentage of electricity produced from renewable uh, sources by X year. Um, And what's interesting is that there are far fewer EERSs than there are RPSs. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's uh, clearly the least cost fuel uh, and uh, there are several states that have an RPS but no energy efficiency standard.
0: I have heard that energy efficiency is not as sexy, and that's and that's why. Perhaps that's one reason. <laughs> but it is an incredibly cost-effective way to make your uh, energy system more productive, as we've, as we've seen. And, you know, there's a lot of different components of, of these efficiency standards and a lot of different ways in which they vary from state to state. You know, the first obvious way is what kinds of things qualify under the efficiency standard and 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 what things, what's defined as efficiency right what's yeah. defined as efficiency does it include things that we've talked about in the past like behavioral programs right and, sure and the impacts of those demand or response demand response or combined heat and power which we're going to talk about in a, in a couple of minutes so you know what is included in this in this idea of of um, uh, energy efficiency and in what qualifies as 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 counting towards a standard you know another thing is most states if not all states have some sort of cost effectiveness test that defines what technologies or approaches um, meet a cost effectiveness threshold and can therefore be included in that in that utilities programs but one of the things we've also talked about in the past is that these effectiveness tests, these cost effectiveness tests, vary from state to state. Some, some are more effective than others, some exclude a number of technologies, and, and some are more inclusive.
1: So that's a really important policy. I would say it's sort of a maybe a sub-bullet, Tom, to the energy efficiency standard, these, these cost tests and uh, evaluating whether energy efficiency uh, rebates to consumers and large industrial uh, programs are cost-effective and therefore allowable for rate recovery to, uh, for, for the utility to receive rate recovery from their commission. Um, I think maybe along the sort of same level as the cost-benefit tests is decoupling. Right. And decoupling is a policy that uh, decouples a utility's sales of electricity uh, from their revenue for the purposes of um, most commonly energy efficiency. And so this is, a, this is a means of of at least making a utility sort of indifferent on uh, energy efficiency. They are remunerated for the kilowatt hours that they otherwise would have sold to customers, but are, in this case, didn't sell because of uh, end-use energy efficiency.
0: That's right. How do you interest a utility in in promoting programs that by their very nature will reduce... The revenues exactly. to the utility and reduce the shareholder earnings, and that gets to another uh, policy which is related to decoupling, which uh, are incentive payments. A uh, number of states, Colorado is one, has an incentive payment if the utility uh, gets within a certain percentage of their target, and an even bigger bonus if they actually go over their target. So if they if they can exceed their targets uh, in efficiency then they actually earn more money for their investors. And so there's a they're trying to put in not just make it indifferent to having efficiency, but actually make their shareholders want to achieve more efficiency because that will increase their earnings.
1: A rate of return, right? Like yeah. similar to, to what they receive for building transmission or generation. So I think the efficiency standards clearly are kind of the macro policy, cost effectiveness test decoupling those are enabling policies for energy efficiency resource standards. there are several others that I think we're going to talk about
0: one of the one of the other things that's often tied in with an efficiency standard that we, sh- that we might want to mention are things like a system benefits charge right, or some sure. sort of a, a public benefits charge some co- or a percentage that goes from your sales that goes towards these programs and that might be managed by the utility itself. Uh, it might be managed by the commission, or it might be uh, contracted with a third party. And there's a number of third parties in different states around the country. In Oregon, of course, it's the it's the uh, Energy Trust of Oregon that that manages their utility uh, ratepayer-funded uh, efficiency programs. Efficiency Vermont. Efficiency right? Vermont. Connecticut has the big has third ones, party. Uh, is Massachusetts. Connecticut. So. Yeah, you might have a third party, and and the the argument there is that um, you know a third party uh, doesn't have that disincentive. They they actually have the the mission of of maximizing efficiency, and so they're not they, they don't end up in that situation where they may have competing interests within the within the utility, for example.
1: Exactly, and it, it might you might find it interesting. Uh, grab your next utility bill and take a close look at it. There are. Often a, a number of what are called riders to the bill, uh, where a utility is collecting, in addition to their base rate, a small charge, in some cases a large charge, uh, for things like uh, fuel costs for natural gas, or transmission, or energy efficiency. And in this case, a a surcharge on your bill to pay for Tom your system's benefits charge, right. um, uh, and and that fund is used to incentivize. Uh, participating com- consumers to uh, install energy efficiency measures, in some cases to, uh, to encourage them to do behavioral conservation measures. But uh, in, in, in a broad sense, it's a fund with, within which a utility or a third party can use to incentivize consumers to um, install efficiency products.
0: And, you know, that you mentioned the behavioral, that's one of the relatively new uh, techniques for achieving these, these kinds of efficiency gains. Uh, one way that's uh, a little maybe older, but always changing, but has also been recently considered as being a part of, maybe a part in some states of their energy efficiency standard, are improvements in the building codes. So building
1: uh, codes are huge here, building right?
0: codes are enormous. We've talked about this in the past. You know um, what you build today is gonna be around for many decades. Uh, and so the, the way in which you build that building um, is gonna have a, a continued impact over the energy use in that, uh, in that community for, for a long period of time. And there is, um, there, there is a standard called the IECC standard. Um, International Code Council puts out, Energy Code Council puts out this standard every three years and um, states have a a few different ways in which they might adopt uh, these particular standards. They might specify a particular year uh, and then, uh, or they might specify an entity that adopts the standard and that gets applied uh, and updated over time. Or they might have a, um, a regular review of their existing standards so that they can keep up with the latest uh, energy conservation code. So these—it's
1: interesting. These uh, IECC codes, Tom—they come out every three years. Yep. Uh, from and uh, are continuous improvement, and these include things like uh, wall insulation, attic insulation, um, and uh, heating degree days, cooling degree days, and. Uh, With every code, with every new code, there's a, in some cases, uh, more energy, less energy-consuming requirements for certain building components. In some years, they've gone from a kind of a prescriptive to a uh, more of a performance-based pathway. Uh, So the 2006 code, uh, uh, the 2009 code, rather, was a 15% efficiency improvement over the 2006 code likewise the 2012 IECC was a 30 percent improvement over the 2006 code and uh, and so the 2015 code would be the next one that's expected out uh, this year and so this sort of incremental improvement in uh, energy consumption through building codes and you make a really great point about not only the embodied energy of building products but um, I mean think about how long homes and businesses are in place and consuming energy and and doing it right the first time the uh, the long-term life cycle cost savings are really pretty tremendous from for building codes. I think Tom it might be worth just talking briefly about how states and municipalities adopt building codes and uh, because that that can get quite complicated. And
0: it's also different throughout the country right you have a number of states where the the building code is established at the state level and right. then you have other states, uh, particularly states in the West, where you have what are called home rule cities and counties that are constitutional entities at the local level, and they really have the authority over setting mm-hmm. those uh, those mm-hmm. building codes. Um, And so they may be adopted at the state level. They might be adopted, in some cases, at the county level. And and in other cases, they're adopted at the city level. And sometimes it's a combination of all three.
1: So in those cases, it's a real patchwork. Within a state, you might have a municipality with no energy conservation code and a municipality on the 2012
0: Exactly. Energy conservation, guide. and this was a this was a real target of the uh, American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, Ara the, the stimulus bill, as it was known back in 2009. Uh, it had a great deal of money that went to states for energy efficiency, for renewable energy. Uh, about I think uh, three billion dollars or so was distributed around the country to energy offices to to do these kinds of programs but one of the requirements were that they adopted a minimum of the 2009 IECC
1: right and so that, a requirement on getting the getting the funding right yeah. and
0: and so that was a re, that was the first big national push mm-hmm. really to require states to to improve their energy codes and as a result um, almost all states around the country have now uh, established at least a 2009 standard Um, But, you know, here we are. It's 2015, uh, and we're getting into the second iteration of improvement over that 2009 standard. So there's a big question out there. Have states kept up? Right. Have they continued to improve?
1: So we've talked about energy efficiency resource standards. We talked about some of their enabling policies like cost-benefit tests and decoupling uh we talked about building codes being sort of one of the most common uh, energy f- efficiency policies but let's talk for a minute tom about a, a lesser known uh policy to promote a form of energy efficiency called combined heat and power right yeah so chp um Great. or cogeneration as it's sometimes referred to um this is a really uh, unique uh, application, typically industrial and utility scale projects, um, in which the, uh, where the, the normal efficiency of a power plant, a sort of single cycle power plant, is in the 40 to 50 percent range. But with a combined heat and power system, you're drastically in- increasing the thermal efficiency of the system, such that the total efficiency is closer to 70 or 80 percent. So think about a place where you have not only a need for electricity, but also a need for heat. So a, a campus is a, is a classic application, or a brewery, right, where you need both electricity and steam. Um, so these systems can be used for heating and electricity. They can also be used for actually cooling through something called absorption chilling, where you take steam and create um, uh, cooling uh through the absorption chilling process. So where the application matches up and it's not it's not for everybody, right? Because you need a very but constant heating and cooling. But most
0: load. industrial most industrial applications are real good candidates for this kind of exactly. technology. And that's where you can get these great improvements. We've talked you know, we're focusing on energy productivity, right? And what you mentioned was an increase in productivity from forty or fifty percent to seventy or eighty percent. And that is a significant change. That's a significant improvement.
1: So it, it 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 seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, you're you're bumping up your overall system efficiency significantly by generating both uh, heat in the form of steam and electricity. But why why is CHP why is it sort of not that well known? There're plenty of industrial applications out there, but what's holding it back? And one of the things that's holding it back, uh, I think we would argue, are the tariffs, the rates that these customers that install a CHP system uh, would go on. Mm -hmm. And there's something called a standby charge or a standby tariff by which a utility company uh, charges customers for uh, that period of time when uh, they require grid power. So you can imagine uh, a brewery installing a CHP system, and for 99% of the year having their own power, but for that 1% of the year, if when the system goes down for maintenance or unscheduled maintenance, uh, they need to draw grid power. And so how do you structure the tariff such that at, in those instances, in those moments, what is the standby charge? What should the customer be paying for that, um, that reliability in the event they need to use it? And it's that place, Tom, it's that um, transparency in rate setting, and in some cases, just the existence of a standby charge, a standby tariff that's been approved by a public utilities commission, that is holding back um, combined heat and power sure, applications.
0: reduces the economics of the of the whole project, even if, or or like even said, holds it
1: back if it doesn't exist
0: at all. Right, right. right. Yeah. Or even even if, like you said, 99% of the time they're going to be producing their own power. So there's a few things that states can do to try and take away these barriers, to try and provide more incentives to, uh, to adopt CHP policies more broadly?
1: You know, we started this month on, with uh, President Obama with the, uh, with the doubling of energy productivity um, directive, and I think it's appropriate to come back to what the president has done. He issued uh, an executive order in 2012 that called for 40 gigawatts 40 gigawatts of electric combined heat and power uh, by 2020. So a 50% increase in current trends in the deployment of CHP and technical assistance and funding to help states and, and industrial customers get there. And so it's a nuanced policy. It's certainly not as uh, uh, widely applicable as, as building codes, uh, but huge energy savings from industrial manufacturing applications, et cetera.
0: And, you know, we talked just to tie this into last month, we talked about net metering uh, and interconnection, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly within the context of solar. But one of the things that we've heard from uh, industrial CHP users is that if you can expand those net metering policies to include CHP so that CHP can actually feed back onto the grid. Right. Um, that actually also increases the uh, opportunities for deploying more CHP, more efficient power, That's more great. productive power. Exactly. So that uh, concludes our uh, our series on energy productivity. Uh, you've been listening to the Energy Policy Podcast. You can find the Energy Policy Podcast at policypodcast dot com or on the iTunes store, and uh, this is a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. Thanks a lot for listening.